Please listen carefully. G'day. You're listening to City Speak with Greg Van and Stephen Yarwood, a podcast about cities by people who love cities and want you to love your city too. Hey, Stephen, I'm very excited today. How about you? G'day, Greg. Yeah, I am excited, eh? <laughs> That's very Canadian of you. That's that you so have excited. to be Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Very good. We're very excited because our good friend Brent Totteron is with us today as a follow-up to a session that uh, Brent and I did together for the Planning Institute of Australia a few weeks ago at their planning National Planning Festival. Brent, a very warm welcome, although I understand you don't need any more warmth where you are. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm warm enough, thanks. But uh, it's nice to have a warm welcome. Nice to see you virtually, fellas. We recently did an episode where we talked about uh, some of uh, the world's leading urbanists, and and Brent was on that list. So it's fantastic to have you, Brent. And we're going to explore some ideas. And you've got a tremendous amount of international expertise. And uh, I know Greg's got some questions, so I'm going to let him fire away. Just by way of quick intro for our, our multitude of listeners out there, Brent is one of the leading figures in urbanism and city planning in the world. He's been advising cities all around the world for the last 10 plus years. Prior to that was holding senior leadership roles in uh, planning and urban design in some major Canadian cities. So he's got the absolute best pedigree, I think, of anyone we've spoken to so far. So uh, we're really looking forward to um, to talking to him. So Brent, what we're doing today is picking up on some of those unanswered questions that we didn't have time for when we did the Planning Institute gig. So um, I'm going to start with uh, one that was um, related to the whole question of communication and your concept that I know you've used for many years of constructive candour. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from and how, why, why do people need to know about it? Well, before you ask, we haven't talked about who, who Brent is. So, um, Do you want me to go back to my childhood to start the yeah. story? I just gave you an intro, Steve. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, a, cool. it's a pretty good intro. I'll just say this, that I spent I'm almost 30 years now as a city, uh, city planner and urbanist, virtually uh, obsessed with uh, understanding cities, understanding how they change and how, how they can change for the better. About 12 of those almost 30 years are, was in municipal leadership in the cities of Calgary and then as chief planner for the city of Vancouver here in Canada and um, and the rest of it in the private sector. I do most of my work still in the private sector for cities, um, probably about 60-40. Uh, I work for some of the most ambitious cities in the world. What I like is that only ambitious cities call me only ambitious mayors or chief planners or city managers call me because the ones that are happy with the status quo don't bother talking to somebody like me because uh, chances are they'll probably just feel a bit uncomfortable that I might be challenging them that they can go further faster. And I'm all right with that. You know, there's some interesting cities out there that probably won't uh, call me because of that, but I'm all right with that because I'm a sole practitioner. I've decided not to run a big company. My goal is to spend my finite amount of professional time changing cities as much as possible. I I like bang for the buck. If I'm spending time on something, it's because I think it'll do a lot of good and actually lead to real powerful, positive change. And I don't like going through the motions. I don't like wasting my time. And any discretionary time I have goes to my two young kids. I'm 52, almost 52 years old, and I started raising a family twice. I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. I was always motivated 
motivated to make the future better even before I had kids, nearly obsessive about it. But it's safe to say that since my kids were born, uh, my obsessiveness probably has at least doubled uh, in terms of needing to do better, faster for the future of all of our kids and grandkids. And in terms of where constructive candor came from, uh, I actually, if, if there's a longer story uh, to that, but um, I actually got to know a, a fellow, uh, a Canadian who's a, quite a, a, a remarkable thinker who talked about the fact that no designer ever wanted, ever critiques design because they want design to get worse. They always, critique was always to get better because they wanted a better outcome. And that really inspired me when I took the job to be chief planner of Vancouver. You only critique if you want things to get better. That's the designer's sort of attitude. And certainly I wanted to have a candid conversation when I went to the city of Vancouver about what Vancouver was phenomenal at. It was already a city that inspired me before I came here. But we also needed to tell the truth about the parts that Vancouver wasn't doing well or wasn't doing at all, and how to take that Vancouver urbanism, that so-called Vancouverism, to the next level and the next level after that. And that required some honesty and some bluntness. And I've always been blunt, but I, but I wanted to be even more so, even though I was in a municipal leadership role. So I came up with this term, constructive candor, uh, in my tour uh, of doing public speaking when I first arrived here in Vancouver. I actually use slides that said constructive and I then I put up the defin dictionary definition of constructive which is that you weren't doing it basically for your ego to make yourself feel smarter than anybody else you were you were doing it because you wanted things to get better and candor was all about just being honest about what needed to be honest, what we all needed to be honest about. When I first arrived here in Vancouver in 2006, that became my sort of rallying cry for how I was going to handle my first six months of the conversation with my new city. It built on my tradition of bluntness, but uh, since I've been a municipal planner and now I'm back in the private sector for almost nine years, uh, it's fair to say my constructive candor has gone uh, even further. Just to finish that story, uh, I, like, I like the term that Greg taught me in terms of how to institute constructive candor, which is tell the truth, but don't be a wanker about it. Uh, and Greg, Greg used that phrase for me. Well, he, he, he wasn't chastising me. He said, what I like about you, Brent, is you tell the truth, but you're not a wanker about it. Because uh, there's a lot of wankers out there that seem to want to be blunt for the wrong reasons. And I really appreciated the compliment, but I really took that to heart. And I've used that quote all over the world now as an inspiration for how to tell the truth without turning off your audience, how to tell the truth without closing the mind of someone that you could potentially change the mind of. And if you're a wanker about it, they just roll your eyes and they uh, ignore you. It's less technical uh, a term, being a wanker. And, you know, I think it's the PIA presentation was the first time I ever put the word wanker on a slide in, uh, in homage to you, Greg. I, I officially use it officially as part of my conversation about how to speak more candidly, more bluntly, but not being a jerk about it. Uh, or a wanker in your case. You know, the fundamental message here, I reckon, Brent, is that, as you said, it's not about ego. You know, it's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about being persuasive and helping people see how things could be better. Just before you jump into the question, I'll add an anecdote to it, because one of the reasons I think I consider it important to not be a wanker is because I was a municipal leader for 12 years in two different cities. And I didn't like it when the out-of-towner came to town Kind of shit all over the place, to use a technical term. I used to call it the drive-by shitting. He'd come into town, 
shit all it's always a he come into town kind of criticize everything all over the place not even try to understand what the city's doing and then invariably as the municipal leader i would be the one that the media asked to comment on his incredibly insulting and not particularly informed comments and i always thought you know if i go out afterwards and and work in cities i'm not going to do that that you can tell the truth without doing that because my eyes rolled when i heard their even even though i could acknowledge that he was uh, making some particularly good points i still didn't really fully i don't know embrace his commentary because he was such a jerk about it yeah i call it so, yeah, Brent, i yeah. call it cultural imperialism uh this sense that we we turn up and we apply um whether it's you know it's white in in all of our cases it's white anglo-saxon uh dare i say pale stale male uh approach to to things where we what we really need to do is empower people in their own communities in their own cities um to work out what they need for them but our job is to ask the right questions and there are some basic rules and principles that we need to help people understand so that they can actually make the right decisions, ask the right questions, make the right decisions. Well, yes. And and I don't mind going further than that, saying I'm not shy with my observations. I'm not shy with my opinions. But you're quite right that I'm going to be leaving town as a consultant. I always knew that. And so the key thing is, have you empowered? Have you strengthened the perspective of the folks that are working on the ground in that local municipality? Have you given them some better arguments, some better language, some inspiration, uh, some ideas, some just uh, advice on how to get around some of the barriers so that they can go and do their best work. I don't mind being being pushy about it. I don't just say, here's my thoughts neutrally. I come to town and I, I make observations. Greg will remember how unshy I was when I first came to Brisbane and gave a presentation looking at the window of the god-awful piece of car infrastructure along your Brisbane waterfronts and said, you know, there's only so far, there's only so far you're ever going to go in, in great progressive city making when you refuse to still uh, get rid of that mistake that you have on your waterfront. So I'm not shy on making those kinds of observations, but you're, you can do that in a way that is about empowering the locals instead of insulting them. And, you know, you can be critical of previous generations while empowering the current and future generations. It's so, so right, Brent. I, I was just going to observe the, the Queensland equivalent of that experts from elsewhere is called the seagull syndrome. They fly into town, shittle everything and fly out again. But the uh, to, on the constructive candour, you know, what is it that holds our planners and city makers back from doing it? And how do we handle the politics around that honest advice? Any tips there? That's a tough one because sometimes it's us that hold ourselves back. I often say our profession has self-neutered itself by convincing itself that you can't speak the way that I speak. You can't tell the truth because either it's unprofessional or you'll get fired or maybe both. The most restricting advice I've ever gotten about what planners can't do is from planners. So we have gotten very good at convincing ourselves that there are things we can't do. And then we shrug our shoulders and say, well, Sure, we haven't been more influential. Uh, we haven't gotten more things done, but we're not really the decision makers, right? Uh, we're just the advisors. We're, we're the advice givers. So it's not our fault if the decision makers didn't do the right thing. But well, wait a minute. We neutered ourselves in terms of our own persuasiveness. We limited our own ability to affect the conversation out there in the public, affect the decision making. Uh, of decision makers. And in some cases, we actually are the decision makers, but that's a, a separate point. It, it's our own profession that has convinced ourselves. Um, some of the first advice I got about how not to speak, how not to write, uh, 
were from the leaders of my own profession when I graduated from my undergrad in city planning back in 1992. We don't almost don't need anybody else telling us we can't do it because we've been spending so much time telling ourselves we can't do it. But on top of that, say you have someone uh, who's a little more outspoken. There are some other forces out there that are conspiring to keep us boring and technical and, and not particularly persuasive. There are politicians out there. And I have to say, Australia has more than their fair share of these kinds of politicians who um, are quite upset if uh, city planners uh, speak out and tell the truth. Some consider the job of planners to make uh, and all civil servants to make the politician look good, whoever the politician happens to be, instead of being politically neutral and always uh, speaking truth to power, which is what planners should be. So I, I'm not going to be flippant and say all planners should just um, tell the truth and, and be honest. There are some politicians out there that uh, can be quite against that principle. And I think there needs to be a candid conversation about that. I think those kinds of politicians need to be called out. And, and it needs to be said, do you want good leadership in your city or not? Do you want better outcomes in your city or not? If so, why are you neutering some of the smartest people in, in some particular rooms uh, around better city making and not letting them uh, talk to the public in a truthful way, not let them talk to the media in a truthful way, not allow them to be on social media? There's lots of places that don't even allow their planners to be on social media, at least not officially. Uh, they can sometimes be there anonymously. So between the planning profession and the politician and some politicians who don't want uh, planners to be leaders, that can make it a dicey thing to do to illustrate some constructive candor. You know, I've had cases where I've I've said this kind of thing and I've had hands raised in audiences and and the person has said, well, that's all well and good, Mr. Totteron, but but you know, somebody tried to do what you do and they got fired for it here. One of the yeah. challenges, Brent, Brent, is I always say that um, most planners report to either a mayor, a minister or a manager. And so the ability to be honest and candid and call things like, you know, responding to climate change or good urban design or social justice, it, it becomes very hard when we're balancing in economic issues, political issues, political ideologies. And so um, there really is a, a, a place for for leaders in and encouraging the planning profession to provide that leadership because that's what that's where planning started uh you know 100 100 years ago well but let's break down those three because i think you're right the mayor the minister and the manager uh, you know i've worked for many managers that didn't want me to speak out at all and my solution was simple i stopped working for those managers but there were other managers who empowered and encouraged me and knew that that was one of my values that i brought to the table uh, so if you have a good manager, that shouldn't be a problem. And it depends on where you are. Right? Is it your manager in the private sector? Is your manager at a, at a council, as you call it? We call them municipalities. You call them councils. Or is it a, is it a manager in a ministry, which is harder? And, the, or, and then the third M is the minister. And yes, those can, that can be the diciest M of them all, because telling the truth when it disagrees with, with a politician, which is why you don't get, you probably get the lowest amount of constructive candor coming out of federal and state or, or provincial 
politics because the tradition, of course, is very yes minister there. But that's one of the reasons why you often don't see uh, planners that want to be outspoken taking those kinds of particular jobs. So you're, you're quite right, but those are not all equal, those three things. And you can find places and, and positions and roles where you can have varying levels of the ability to speak candidly. And I say speaking truth to power, even if it's not in the public rooms, but it's in the back rooms, is still always part of our job. If you can only tell them the truth in the back rooms, at least tell them the truth there. Yeah, I, I think that's really useful conversation, the whole thing. I, I like the concept of limiting beliefs, uh, just to get back to our own sort of cultural cringe in the profession, is that we sort of, if you believe you can't do something, well, there's a pretty good chance that'll be the outcome. So we really have to sort of turn that around. But I do want to talk about, so I think we understand the problem pretty well. It's just about now, I think it's about hearts and minds, isn't it? It's about from how do we say, communicate effectively in that sort of non-boring, jargon-filled way, but also use data and, and, you know, the intellectual, getting to the minds, you know, what you call Brent City making math is a good example. How do we blend those two to be as persuasive as we possibly can? Uh, before you do, Brent, the other thing is I completely agree because I had this experience when I was Lord Mayor about how do you bring people along on the journey? Uh, and so be interested in some thoughts you've got on that uh, as well. But um, also I like the idea of asking people questions, getting them to work out, you know, hands up who wants to have an outdoor dining experience next to a freeway, uh, who wants to have a romantic glass of wine next to a car park, those sorts of things. Be really interested in some of your thoughts on on how do we inspire people? Uh, what I always say is it, it, it starts with not being mind-numbingly boring. And part of the permission we have to give ourselves is to be interesting. Um, when I say that uh, some of my bosses told me what not to say and what not, how not to write, one of the main directions I got was you have to write in a very professional way. And by professional, frankly, they meant boring. Don't say anything that wasn't uh, completely calm, if you will. I, I don't know the best way to say it, but uh, you know they would they would take some of my early writing and they frankly trained me out of writing this way for a while, where I wrote very boring, and and they they struck anything that that frankly made the writing interesting, and and then the report went in. Sorry, you get carried away with being objective and professional, can't you? You know, that uh, oh, to the point. It depends that on who your audience is. If your audience yeah. is, you know, a legal tribunal, then fine. That writing is 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 probably the, the appropriate thing to do. But then they give media interviews that way. Then they give counsel presentations that way uh, or presentations to the public that way. They write their staff reports that way. And then only lawyers want to read them. So it's like you trained yourself to write for one audience, the most boring audience. And then you said, that's how I have to write and speak for everyone. So that was that is a monumental mistake in our profession. So you write what I say to young planners is you write the way you speak as much as possible. You write human and you speak human is the way I put it. Not 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 robot. And you find ways to be interesting because God help us, the forces of evil that are trying to uh, build more sprawl and build more car dependency, they have found very successful ways to be interesting. 
to cut through the noise, to repeat their messages over and over again in their car commercials or what have you. And they are very successful at it. And they're very good at lobbying your bosses and your councils uh, if you are not good at being persuasive uh, to your bosses and councils. So they are pulling out every possible stop to uh, you know, propel forward the forces of evil. And we uh, have been self-neutering ourselves even in terms of our language and our, and our definition of professionalism. So I have learned reluctantly at first to embrace the concepts of branding and marketing and just public speaking in a way that's much uh, more sort of deliberately and strategically bombastic at times, because that's what you need to break through the noise. That's what you need to break through everybody's busy day. And if you can't break through everybody's busy day and get some of these messages in and repeat them over and over and tell them as stories in a compelling way using the combination of better math and better storytelling, hence my hashtag city making math, Greg, um, you know, you can use this data, this math, this compelling mathematics that really changes people's minds about how much doing the wrong thing costs and such. And you combine that with great storytelling that's almost anecdotal that people People can relate to in a human sense, then you can have things that resonate with them. But in both cases, you got to do that in a way that's, uh, you know, math is not inherently interesting. Uh, I hated math in school, but I love math. I love using math now because uh, I know how persuasive it can be. Math is like evidence. Engineers have been using math against us uh, to do some pretty bad things for many decades. We can now use math successfully to get much better city making for people. As I often say, I now use math more effectively than the engineers do. Uh, in persuading decision makers to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. But it's always this combination of better math and better storytelling, better data and evidence, and better storytelling and human engaging storytelling that really wins the day. And we avoid this debate around using jargon, for example. Um, I've, I've often got into this kind of debate with city planners because I come up with terms that I think are catchy, that the media will like and thus report on, I brand my ideas. And, and people say to me, well, isn't that just jargon? Uh, and I thought we're supposed to get rid of jargon. You know, city planning departments have jargon jars where you have to put in a dollar if you use jargon in a meeting or something like that. We're supposed to train ourselves out of jargon. What I say is, the only bad jargon is boring jargon that nobody but planners know. And maybe that's the definition of jargon, really. Uh, but it's three-letter acronyms, boring and completely inside baseball for, for city builders. Whereas the kind of marketing that I use is the stuff that resonates out there in the media, in popular media, in professional media, mainstream media, and in social media that can go viral, that can uh, reach more people and make them think more often. Um, so it's that kind of language that I think we need to embrace more. And by all means, cut out the boring technical jargon, but don't cut out the buzzwords. I saw a presentation by a, a famous urbanist recently that I shared a stage with where he put up a whole bunch of buzzwords, including some of mine on this, the screen and said, we need to get rid of all these buzzwords. And I got up after him and I said, no, we need to get rid of about half those buzzwords because half those buzzwords are completely useless and counterproductive. The other half I found to be extremely successful in getting different conversations and people thinking and decision makers making different decisions. So let's not just attack all buzzwords. Let's just attack the bad ones. It's about being compelling and persuasive and in direct language that 
you know, people can relate to. Let's turn our minds, Brent, to all of that, to um, COVID. We've been living with this for a while. How, how do we start to you know, influence the public conversation about the transit mix that, that we've seen challenged in, in recent times and, you know, and, and engage with communities in the COVID world where people are often in lockdowns and things? Well, it's interesting. I had a conversation early in the pandemic with uh, Jarrett Walker. You know Jarrett, probably one of the, if not the smartest person on the planet when it comes to public transit. He's done a lot of work down in, in Australia and New Zealand and such. So uh, he knows your cities well and works all over the world. And he and I uh, collaborate occasionally. And, and we had this chat about how we could use the um, the time during the pandemic constructively, because frankly, some of our projects were being put on hold initially. And what we both decided, the two of us, is that the best thing we could do is be out there really vocally pushing the kind of conversations that needed to be had early about the implications of the pandemic to many aspects of city making that we've been fighting to to, to improve for decades and decades and had been making real progress on. And there was a great risk that on top of all the other horrible, obvious things that come from a pandemic, not the least of which are the death of a lot of people. And of course, my own father died of COVID during this pandemic. On top of all of that death and, and tragedy, there could also be great damage done to cities. Um, literally decades of progress erased within a very short period of time around increased transit ridership, increased bike mode share, increased city building, and then increased inner city densification and, and, um, and infill with a very strong market um, tailwind behind it. So we, we and certainly I uh, were, were talking very early in the pandemic about all the things we were observing during the pandemic, what cities were uh, addressing the pandemic in a proactive way to both address the challenges of the pandemic itself, but also to support many of what I call the pre-existing conditions that cities already were struggling with, from urban pollution to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and to affordability, infrastructure costs, public health associated with suburbanization, etc. So there were already cities that were acting quickly, some other cities that were the opposite of quick. You know, they would make changes once they had exhausted all other options. I certainly was pushing the conversations about the things that were under threat during the pandemic. Uh, our gains under transit ridership, our, our market interest in infill, and, and the risks that we had. Increased car dependency, increased suburban sprawl uh, as a result of the fear coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely right. There's a conversation around density being a problem when it's really, really about crowding. There's, there's wasn't a conversation that one of the very around- first conversations that came up during the pandemic that density was the problem. Exactly right. Mm. And, and it also was, and public so transport. We to- We're seeing a, an increase in in uh, vehicle ownership in Australia at least over the last twelve months by six or seven percent. And so people are complaining about traffic and and saying that it's worse than it's ever before. But that's because people People are being really turning to whole new behaviour patterns, aren't they? Well, at, at least temporarily. And the question is, what would be permanent? What would be sticky, if you will? Stay with us. And, and what would go 
back once uh, the conditions change. Uh, so transit ridership, for example, saw massive hits even in, in ridership, even in, in very successful transit places like Vancouver here. And I have to say the impact was a lot less in places where good management decisions and good communication occurred. If they were quick to bring out mask mandates, for example, and uh, loading rules in terms of uh, how you would load the bus or the train, close off every second seat, things like that, the, 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 the transit authorities that were quick on those kinds of management necessities saw less of a drop in ridership than others. But you also needed this conversation. And certainly I was out there a lot saying, none of us can afford for transit to fail or even be weakened medium to long term. Our cities are dependent on transit succeeding and continuing to grow in terms of ridership. That's what we need for our cities and city regions to survive. And if you think that it's going to be as simple as just, well, more people are going to choose to drive, more people are going to choose to live in the suburbs, the costs and consequences of that, the math on that is staggering. And thus, it's not just okay to say, well, that's what people are going to choose. The consequences of that are staggering, both economically and in terms of things like climate change. So we needed to be out, and I certainly was out proactively giving that message saying, whatever happens temporarily, we, we need to have the good ideas during the pandemic become permanent, and we need the bad, unfortunate changes that occurred during the pandemic be temporary. And the best way we can do that is by talking about it and planning for it and building strategies around it proactively. Because, you know, I was asked so many times early on, what do you think is going to happen? And I always say, I'm a city planner. I'm not a city guesser. My job is to actually think about what needs to happen for our city regions to succeed and to fight to make that happen and not hope and cross our fingers that it won't happen. We've got, we have to fight to make it happen. So that's what city planning is as opposed to city reacting, right? I like, so- that. I like that, Brent, because I think it's really important. I think a lot of the time uh, the planning profession tries to predict what uh, might happen or tries to predict what people want rather than actually providing the leadership and defining. It's like futures. It's not about guessing the future. It's about creating the future and, and empowering the planning profession to provide leadership and actually physically help people make the right decisions. We have come from this heritage of being the, the profession of the big ideas. And uh, rather than just sort of thinking we've got to manage change as it comes towards us, we get in front of the game and try and say, well, here's a better path. Why don't we do this? I mean, it's really about letting people know the the real choices and the impacts of those choices. That's what I'm hearing you say, Brent. And I do like a lot that idea, keep the good things, address the bad things as quickly as possible. That's a really neat way of just summarising the COVID response, isn't it? Well, that's what the smart cities of the world have done. You look at the Latin American cities, they were the quickest off the mark to make temporary changes uh, to get people off the transmillennial crowded buses to address urban crowding, not urban density, but urban crowding to prevent viral spread uh, and to make room for people. And they were already good at it with their cyclovia and their closing down of lanes in, from car- to cars and giving them to people. So they already had that culture and that organizational experience and how to do it. So they were super 
super quick off the mark, but they weren't necessarily big on the permanency conversation. On the other hand, I saw the European cities in early months not be quite as fast as the Latin Americans, but when they started to roll out their ideas, um, they were already talking about what was permanent. They were already saying, we're doing this and we're keeping it because not only does it address the pandemic, it's part of what we were planning to do over the next three to five years for urban pollution and climate change anyway. Now we're just going to do it in two months instead of five years. And so they understood the idea of addressing your pre-existing conditions and making your city stronger and more successful. They were already good at that. You know, they were the ones who learned from the 1970s oil crisis and actually transformed their transportation and, and, and car dependency. Whereas we in North America and Australasia went back to cars uh, right after the uh, oil crisis was over and didn't learn much at all. So we see examples from around the world of, of, of cities and nations who are quicker than us, who are better at understanding the need for permanency than us. And by us, I mean uh, North America and, and Australia and, and New Zealand, because we've got a lot in common, North America, Australia and New Zealand, and not necessarily always in a good way. We've got very similar cultures around change, around cars, around, you know, big backyards and, and, and wide open spaces. And so, frankly, North America and Australia and New Zealand were slower at the city making side of the action to make sure that our cities came out strong and healthy and positioned for success moving out of the pandemic and through the economic recovery that would inevitably be right after the pandemic. Yeah, we, we've spent a lot of time in Australia, Stephen, haven't we, importing North American trends, which have actually not been at all helpful for our cities. Yeah, um, we've, we've done often, that for decades. Yeah, you're right, actually. We really have often turned to uh, American-style urbanism. Um, Adelaide had a metropolitan Adelaide transport plan, which was freeways that didn't go ahead with... We've done a lot of that work. and um, But e interestingly enough, we've also often tried to do more European-style approaches but had a lot of pushback. Once once we've gone down the American urbanism route, actually well, it's very turning hard, once hard you, once you get you're a lot of pushback. Once you're car addicted, and this was a conversation I had in Perth when I was there, uh, once you once you start to act and think like an addict, it it really changes your willingness to even consider new ideas, and you, then you become great at excuses like we're not Amsterdam and we're not Copenhagen and we're not fill in the blank because of fill in the blank excuse. I say that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make us all dependent and addicted to cars and oil, and then we would become the biggest defenders for cars and oil. The car companies wouldn't even have to fight the battles anymore. We do. We fight for car space. I say the more we look out of a car window, the more we think it must be right. And that's the problem is that we've trained our brains, we've trained our uh, bodies, we've trained our society to think uh, in a certain way, and and it does make it very difficult to to make those changes. But uh, you know, we we we're constantly fighting the good fight, and it's people like like you and 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 Greg in particular that are out there tweeting it and and educating people. And uh, so it's great to have you on board. The only way, whatever sort of an addiction it is, whatever you're dealing with, the only way you can get started on dealing with it is recognise you've got a problem. You know, that's that's what Brent's really saying is that there's so many people who actually think, oh, no, this is the way we do life and, you know, it's not actually a problem, you know. So our job is to actually point out the implications of that lifestyle it's like for the future of our cities and the future of our planet for that matter. Yeah, it's like a frog sitting in boiling water. Eventually, you get to the point where we're all sitting in traffic jams thinking, how the hell did we get here in the first place? Somebody else better fix this. Only well, we're, we're the ones sitting in the traffic it's, jam. It's even harder than that, guys, because 
you know, if, if, if you're talking to a suburbanite in Australia or North America and you tell them they have a problem, they say, well, what's my problem? What do you mean? Uh, I live in a big house. I love it. I have all of these kinds of uh, positive elements that are the reason for my choice. And how dare you tell me that my choice is wrong? But the part that they're missing is all of their choices being subsidized by everybody else. It's like them having a, an addiction where everybody else is paying for the drugs and often dealing with a fair amount of the, the consequences of being addicted. And so they get to enjoy the benefits. That's where the addiction metaphor breaks down because the folks who are out in the suburbs, except for a long car commute and having to pay for those vehicles and such, most of their choices are actually being subsidized by everybody else. And the negative externalities, in other words, the consequences of those choices are not specifically felt by the people who are addicted. They're actually felt by all of us. And they, they may actually even be a bit uh, hidden to the people who are actually doing the most damage in terms of driving their vehicles and such. So there's this really awkward conversation where you, you're talking to someone in the suburbs who basically, you're telling them basically that they have a t they're taking advantage of a tax loophole, an equivalent, a city building equivalent of a tax loophole. And you're telling them that tax loophole should be closed because the rest of the people shouldn't have to subsidize you. Do we expect them to just agree to that? Of course, they're going to say, no, I don't want that tax loophole closed. Thank you for pointing out to me that I'm subsidized. Now I understand why I enjoy my life so much. I'm going to fight to the death to protect my tax loophole, etc. And the politicians that I'm going to elect are going to make sure that my subsidization is going to stay in place. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, a yeah. very tough conversation to have successfully because the people you're trying to talk to is not necessarily the people who are addicted because they're enjoying, they're, they're high-functioning addicts. That's what I actually called um, I referred to it in the in the Perth uh, uh, op-ed piece that I wrote in the media I did in Perth, Australia. Uh, the problem is that they're high-functioning addicts. They're living large. Everybody else is paying the price. One of the yeah. other problems, of well, course, is that city councils are also generating income from car parking as well. So there's there's so many elements to this yeah. that just make it more and the more. Yeah, and yeah. and the, well, yeah. the private car parks are also owned by people who, you know, have significant lobbying power and and influence and regularly sit. Well, this is the why the math is so important, though, because they're getting revenue from the car parks, but that's one line in their revenue stream, guess how much they're paying for facilitating and supporting the car addiction, the car dependency. It's a massive draw on municipal budgets. And cities are now starting to do, I just tweeted about one that I'm advising now, the city of Kingston here in Canada, that just did the math on the life cycle costs, not the initial construction costs, but the life cycle costs of growth, growth and where it pays for itself and where it doesn't. And guess what? In the life cycle, the suburban growth is a huge drag on the municipal infrastructure. So I'm glad you're getting revenue for your car park, city councillors, but trust me, it's a huge negative to your financial situation when you actually do the full math, which is why some cities are avoiding doing the full math. Because once you know this, it's impossible to unknow it. Uh, you can't unring that bell. Yeah, don't look under that rock, you know. You'll never, yeah, you know, I often think, uh, you know, when I drive through those suburban communities where people put signs up, we value our kids, you know, please drive slowly. I wonder if they think like that when they drive through everyone else's communities, you know. It's a, sort of a sign of how this plays out. But, Brent, we'd love to talk to you all day, but uh, we, we probably will have to start wrapping up in a minute. Um, let's finish off with this last question out of the uh, Planning Institute stuff. Um, what do you think about the statement planning is both an art and a science, Brent? 
Well, sure. And it's more than that. It's a physical science. It's a social science. What I don't like is, and particularly when we're talking about transportation planning, we tend to talk about transportation planning like it's a physical science and then give it to engineers. And I often say that it's more philosophy. Or it's, no, it's more psychology than it is physics. And so uh, we have to understand how human behavior changes when you change the conditions. So it's not just those two things. And what kind of art is it? Well, it's the art of beauty, but it's the, also the art of storytelling. So you could break down those two phrases into a heck of a lot of subcomponents to it. And there's probably a lot to it that's more than that. What I love about it is it's the great generalist challenge. Uh, I, am a, I am an aggressive generalist by nature. I, I don't like being just interested in one thing. And, and I'm constantly working on every element of city success with different cities and sometimes with the same city where we can really understand how all the dots are connected. And so I think what we mean by art and science is that it connects to those two sides of the brain. And it's a nice thing to tell young planners or people interested in getting into planning that if you feel like you're an artistic side, there's a piece to city building that is definitely like that. If you feel like you're a more technical science data evidence side, that's very important in city building. You can satisfy both parts of your brain. And maybe that's why we planners tend to say that, that kind of thing. It's an art and a science. But I think if you want to tell the truth about it, what I love about city building, uh, city planning, urban design, all of that, which I consider almost the same phrases or, or, or interchangeable phrases, is that it's so diverse because cities are so diverse. Maybe this is where I'll leave it. When, when I talk about how we need to make city building more interesting, the most frustrating thing to me is how inherently interesting it is. How many things can you think of that are more interesting than cities or communities or neighborhoods? People start off being almost obsessed with their neighborhood, what's happening on their block and in, and, and in their neighborhood and in their city. They love their city, not just when their sports team is doing well. They feel a passion to, for their city. So they start off being completely paying attention to what ha is happening in their city. And then we manage to make it boring. How do we do that? It's almost hard to make something inherently interesting so mind-numbingly boring. And yet our profession does that. It's, it's rather amazing. So uh, my point of all of that rant is, is uh, we have no excuse that we can't say we're sitting here trying to make something inherently boring interesting. We just have to stop making something that's inherently interesting, not boring. And the beauty is we've got great subject matter to work with, the incredible, wonderful complexity of cities. That's what we're dealing with. I think that that's a, an absolutely top way to finish off, Brent. So we, we're really grateful for your time. It's great to reconnect with you personally. I look forward to one day being back in your city or welcoming you back to one of ours. And uh, Stephen, anything else you wanted to say just before we finish up? Oh, no, it's just great to uh, connect, Brent. And I think you've, uh, you are a great storyteller and there's uh, lots of interesting anecdotes there. And it's been good to not only cover the urbanism, but to also cover the professionalism uh, of the industry. And uh, I think we really need champions who are going to encourage not only community people to participate in cities, but uh, for the planning profession to step up, be bold, be brave, uh, and be the change that they also want to see in cities as well. We wish you more wind to your sails, Brent, and uh, we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much, bro. To both of you as well, great to chat with you and can't wait to see you in person. Good on you, mates. Good on you. Cheers, mate.